From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, we speak with NYU professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat about authoritarianism. And following that conversation, law professor Sonia West joins me to discuss the First Amendment and the press. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Trump assumed the presidency. Depending on one's preferred social media outlet, it's quite possible to hear the president leveled with charges of fascism. But what exactly is fascism? And is that the proper term to describe the fledgling stages of the Trump administration? To engage in that discussion is Dr. Ruth Ben-Ghiat. Ben-Ghiat is professor of history and Italian studies at New York University. She speaks frequently on fascism, and authoritarian rulers. Professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you. Mm-hmm. You know, fascism is such a loaded term, which is one of the reasons we wanted to have you on The Public Morality today. Let's, let's begin by you unpacking authoritarianism and fascism. Are they merely interchangeable terms, or is there something that distinguishes them? Because they get interchanged in the public discourse. So I'll have you unpack it for us. Sure. Well, when we talk about fascism, we're normally talking about a one-party state or a dictatorship. And um, authoritarianism is a term that I've been using because it, it, you can have a, a kind of authoritarian rule within a democracy, <clears throat> and it becomes a kind of illiberal democracy. And I think that's more appropriate for our situation now. Um, that said, you can have a lot of the same traits in terms of beliefs, uh, such as kind of populist, you know, uh, ideologies combined with a strong leader, um, a degree of violence, uh, try to take over, uh, silence the media, things like that. Those can occur in in authoritarianism as well as fascism. Hmm. Uh, This is exclusively, primarily, how would you you, uh, define it, uh, a male-dominated enterprise? Yeah, there's, uh, you know, there are figures such as in France, who she's not in power, Marine Le Pen, who, um, but she is in her position today because of her father, who was, again, never at the head of a state. But it it is, it goes with a masculinist ideology and this idea that you have the strong man who will save the nation. And so when Trump says everything's in crisis and I alone can fix it, that is a classic kind of male, um, strongman approach to leadership. Hmm. Um, what, in addition to what you've already articulated, can you give some specifics on what are some of the, 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 the characteristics of the, this a classic authoritarian leadership in, in, uh, in just in terms of the style of the individual? So y- you have people who, well, some of their things that endear 
um, them to people are also their flaws and often become their fatal flaws. They are obviously very strong-willed individuals who believe that they have a kind of destiny and a special quality about themselves to rule the nation. Because of this, they don't tend to take advice from people. They isolate themselves. They are very clannish individuals. They often appoint members of their family or people who are kind of in their kinship group. Um, that doesn't have to be blood relations. And the, the consequence of this is you often get people who are there because of loyalty rather than talent. And you have, so you have a certain degree of incompetence, which has certainly been in the news regarding <coughs> the travel bans. And you have, again, this kind of isolation from uh, people who could give you good counsel. And almost every ruler of this type, uh, whether dictatorship or democracy, has, has undone themselves because they grow uh, used to being in their own echo chamber around people who only uh, tell them what they want to hear. Mm. And would this also include, I guess, in, in, in a democratic setting, could, uh, would this also include a disregard for institutional memory? Yes, this is important because de depending on how radical they are, you know, they, they can kind of want to uh, destroy the state to take over the state. And there's usually some continuity in the bureaucracy, and we've been seeing uh, debates w whether one should work with Trump or not. Some people say, yes, we need those people for institutional memory and competence, and others say, no, it's a moral, it's a moral sin to, to work with him. But the 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 goal of these people is to is is to make the public and and all of the constituents feel very uncertain about their beliefs and ultimately um, so mistrust of, of of each other and that's the sadness that comes with this kind of uh, political situation. You are designed, you you are led to uh, have a mistrust of your fellow citizens, a mistrust of information. And so the public sphere becomes tra it's transformed into a place of um, a, a place that is the opposite of community. And so, and so under, under that authoritarianism model that you've articulated, then I guess he, he would be positioning himself to say, for your fear, I you know I alone uh, absolutely certain you know ha have the unanswer have the answer for you. Yeah, and all of the, the the fake news and all of this. Now, you know, he didn't invent this. This has been a campaign of uh, the uh, not only Fox News but other uh, alternative media's to discredit the quote mainstream media for many many years. And Trump just stepped in. But this, when he himself is taking on the mantle of of talking about fake news, the idea is to just ultimately to discredit all forms of information that don't emanate from him or his allies. So now Kellyanne Conway has really uh, upped her the violence of her language um, and become really the principal mouthpiece of of Trump and also Bannon and but this is the strategy to to ultimately make a bond which is very populist between the ruler and the people and Trump has used Twitter extremely effectively from the start of his campaign to forge this bond, and it was a kind of shock to the communication system, the mass media system, when he started tweeting, and that's why he continues it. Since you, since you mentioned Twitter, let, let, let's go to that, because um, is there, in your view, an, an apt comparison between uh, the, the central point of your recent book, Italian Fascism, uh, Empire Cinema, and Trump's use of Twitter? 
That's, that's a great question. Um, I think for 1930s and 1940s, you know, dictatorships, um, the <clears throat> moving images and radio were to them what Twitter is to Trump and, of course, also his TV appearances. And it, it can't be underestimated uh, how powerful it can be to feel you have a direct communication with the ruler. And so all of these people in whatever decade, they love mass rallies. People want a piece of the ruler, and this charisma operates very well. Um, and it's interesting because charisma, it, it's, we associate it most readily with being able to see the ruler, but the voice is important. And even the way that Trump uses this kind of everyday sarcastic language in his, tw in his tweets it makes feel pe people feel like they're there with him, whether at 3 a.m., right? He's got this habit of treating in the middle of the night, or 3 p.m., and it's been extremely effective to forge this sense of um, inclusion and, I would say, his own community uh, with his followers. Now, now you stated um, in uh, a New Yorker interview, uh, I, think, I believe it was November 2016, Mm -hmm. the, the, you saw some similarities between President Trump and uh, Italian dictator uh, Benito Mussolini. Could you explain? Yeah. The, so some of the things I've mentioned about personality type are all operative there, um, up to uh, hiring Mussolini hired his son-in-law and, and this kind of um, experiments, you know, which Trump has gestured to with population management, banning people and going and getting plundering, you know, resources. But another very important fact is that Mussolini, uh, from the beginning, he, he used violence. He had his squadras. But he was testing the political class, the conservatives, and the public from the minute he appeared on the scene to see what kind of appetite they had for violence, for extra legality, and all of this. And when Trump um, stated a year ago, which to me was a watershed. I dropped everything when I read this quote. I could stand on Fifth Avenue <clears throat> and shoot someone, and I wouldn't lose any followers. I thought, oh, that's very familiar, because he was asserting that he c was capable of violence, of course, without having to commit any, but he was asserting that he had this loyalty that he had built up, and no one would be able to do anything. And this was a huge test, and people, you know, were nervous about it, and the media commented on it, but no one, the GOP did not strip him of his candidacy. And so the GOP in particular has failed every test from the beginning of the campaign up to now. And, and, and also, uh, uh, it would be accurate, I mean, Mussolini was a, uh, a former journalist who mm -hmm. took on the press, and you know, in, in, to a certain, maybe not the same fake news campaign, but still had that took on the press to try to control it. Is that, is that accurate? Yes, and, and he was very savvy at, at, at kind of manufacturing slogans, and he knew exactly what the power of the press was. He also was the first ruler, and it's, it's worth re reminding your listeners that um, we always talk about Hitler, but Mussolini came to power 11 years before Hitler, <clears throat> and by the time Hitler came to power, in 1933, Mussolini had already experimented many, many things, including the use of mass media and moving images and newsreels to consolidate his cult of personality. And, and that's, he was a genius at that. And Trump came 
already, as we all know, with a brand and uh, a set of uh, behaviors that have always worked for him. And, and so he has used those very ably. Um, and, and he used to, you know, send newspapers where people would write about him and he didn't like what they said. And he used to kind of write on them like, you loser, and send it back to the person. He did this his whole career. But it took place in private. Now he does the same on Twitter. So he attacks ordinary citizens. He attacks, you know, the GOP politicians or whoever he, he wants to. But the behavior is the same. The medium has changed. Mm. Um, you, you mentioned Mussolini. He actually, uh, uh, if memory serves me correctly, he was actually an inspiration to Hitler when Hitler took power. Was he not for, for our effect that he had become in Italy? Yes, and it's too often we think of Mussolini as a kind of uh, deputy of Hitler or somebody who copied Hitler, and at least for the you know the first years it was rather the other way around. Um, and one thing I, I want to uh, mention is that in the 1930s, as you had all these dictators and right-wing movements coming up, there was a lot of work of um, sharing propaganda and setting up networks that became the Axis, and the Axis wasn't just a military alliance, it was a whole cultural uh, con you know, configuration, networks, and people thought they were really going to be seeing the dawn of a new world. And we see this today, and the reason Bannon is in the White House is because of Breitbart. And there's been all this, you know, they're setting up networks abroad, and people have been coming to see them from right-wing movements, uh, uh, you know, in other countries. So this this kind of propagandistic aspect is is very important, and Mussolini was a pioneer uh, and taught Hitler some tricks uh, mm. in this regard. And and, and certainly um, the the recent um, executive order, the travel ban, uh, that, that largely impacted the the Muslim community, would fit into this authoritarian playbook because it plays on fears as well as its, its mm -hmm. othering a, a, another group of people, which is something we haven't talked about, but you don't you need in this authoritarian playbook to other at least one group to make people afraid of? Sure. And and he's, he's you know, going on um, charted terrain here, and uh, but he's taking it to a new level, and just today he tweeted that they were, you know, the bad dudes, and, and Trump uses this. He thinks he's living out a Western with Trump Tower as his fortress. And so the Muslims have been the main, you know, the kind of internal slash external enemy uh, and, and will be used to justify all kinds of things, I believe, in the future. Now, I'm wondering that um, obviously the effectiveness in a, in a, in a democratic society uh, really depends in my view, on the people and, and maybe in other political leaders. I mean, for I mean, mm -hmm. we've had two examples. So with, with the executive order to ban Muslims from, in, from entering uh, the country, um, we've so far seen a very large pushback. But at the same yeah. time, we've also, up to this, at least to this point, President Trump has been given a pass on revealing his tax returns, which I, I think is a... I think is a very big deal. We we wouldn't have allowed that for any candidate for the last forty some years. Yeah, this is this is um, when when we lost that battle and continue to be losing it. This was hugely empowering to Trump, and it was, I believe, something that he took into account early on and realized he could do. Uh, he could move forward in the direction that he wanted, <clears throat> and you know, of course, we can put a lot of the responsibility on the GOP 
uh, who have, again, behaved um, whether out of opportunism, intimidation, or um, a chance they see him as a vehicle to realize some of their own long-held plans. The effect has been to allow him to consider himself to be immune, um, which is something he believes from a long time ago that he is special and he can do things others cannot. But this has been very, very unfortunate. Now, now, now in your view, if, um, if he has allowed uh, to be the exception to, to, you know, to that long-standing uh, rule. Does it? Can you put the GD back in the bottle? Is that just? Would that be the new standard even after uh, Trump leaves office, whenever that is? That's a difficult question. I mean, it depends. A lot of it depends on uh, what the GOP decides to do, um, how smart the Democrats are in. Um, coming up with their own candidates who are I think the I think the Democrats have to actually appropriate some of the methods of the Republicans and by this I mean um, having a candidates who have charisma and can speak directly to people who are um, perhaps a little bit outside of this mastodontic political structure so that will help um, but yes, the genie is out of the bottle in terms of um, everyday violence, right? You know, the amount ever since he got the nomination, as we know from places like the Southern Poverty Law Center, the amount of everyday harassment and violence has risen. And how to get that back uh, in the bottle or I, is, a, is a difficult thing. I think it's very important to be visible. Uh, the protests are very useful to let people see that uh, with their own eyes, uh, although Fox News would like to have them see something different, that um, there are enough people who will not tolerate this behavior. And, and I think being visible and being heard are very important in situations like this. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with NYU professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat, who is also an opinion writer for CNN. Um, where else can they find your, um, some of your, your work? Because you're, you're all over the place. You're not just on CNN. Yeah. Uh, my website, which is www.ruthbengiat.com, is a, a clearinghouse for everything I write, uh, whether academic or uh, in the media, and um, has podcasts and anything else that uh, one would want to hear and read. Mm-hmm. Now, now, as you know, this is sort of how um, we got connected to have you on the show, that I've ca- I cautioned um, people against using the Hitler analogy. I, mean, it, I find yeah. it to be unproductive. Uh, it's like calling someone a racist. It ends conversation. Mm-hmm. Plus, it, it, in my view, it demonstrates how little um, we, under, we know that history. And I was wondering how you saw that. It's true. And <clears throat> even though I'm an expert on fascism, or rather because I'm an expert on fascism, I, I have not called Donald Trump a fascist, and I won't. Um, I've used the word authoritarian because it, 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 authoritarianism can happen in a democracy, and it, it, it can also end conversations because people are not sure what it is. But I, I believe that if we're to really face and respond effectively what is upon us, it's important to um, understand what it is. And so the past can be useful in terms of tactics, and personality types um, in guiding us, 
but there is a limit to that, which is why, again, I, I don't think this is a return of fascism. Um, that, that, that's, not, that's not useful to understand America today. Uh, and one thing I want to say in that regard is I, I found it's actually a, a, a kind of sign of the strength of our democracy that, that people have been unable to understand uh, until now what is in front of them because we, we don't have a reference point for this, and I receive a lot of mail from people all over the world who have lived through authoritarian or other kinds of regimes, from Hungary, from I'm getting letters from Turkey. Um, Spain, I would imagine. Yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly, who say, well, you, you have put your finger on it. This is exactly what we experienced. Uh, and the task is to translate that in, in a way to the American public without frightening them <laughs> overly and and having I think it's important that people don't lose hope and we we are a strong democracy and we we have had a moral sense um, which is why we haven't succumbed to this before and it's important to keep that in our sights let, let me um, throw out two names in a contemporary light uh, again since you've already framed authoritarianism and, 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 and what that means and we're talking about characteristics and we're not talking about uh, disintegrating into a, a one party system at least not yet um, I'll throw out two names for you how about Berlusconi and Putin yeah Berlusconi <clears throat> is very important um, uh, to keep in mind because he ruled on and off for 20 years in a democracy. He, so he, he transformed the Italian system to kind of meet his needs because what these people do is they try and personalize power. And, and this whole talk of people pivoting is, is kind of nonsense because they don't want to pivot to others. They want the system to accommodate them. And this is going back to the tax returns and conflicts of interest. So Berlusconi came in to... Um, as prime minister, and he was there on and off for 20 years. And he had myriad conflicts of interest, which were never really addressed because he just decided he wasn't going to do that. So, so there were many similarities, but he also had a personal brand, and he had this charisma, and he was a you know tycoon of the media. He owned sports teams. And so he was able, through the strength of his personality, to um, kind of intimidate people. And... In terms of Putin, that's you know a different animal and the most um, the most uh, challenging example of this. Um, but all of these strong men like each other. They make ties. Um, Berlusconi and Putin are very good friends. They see each other as kindred spirits, and of course, it's been quite disturbing um, be beyond the financial interests, which are at root with Donald Trump. He seeks profit. He seeks deals. Um, this this kind of Putin is, you know, going to be in the place of Hitler in terms of uh, trying to be the master of Europe. Um, and it will look different than the 1930s, but that's the aim. Mm. So there's a lot of work to be done to uh, make sure that Trump does not get to realize all that he and Steve Bannon uh, might want to do. Professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat. NYU, thank you for being on the Public Morality today. Thank you for having me. That was Professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat. Stay tuned as we speak with University of Georgia Law Professor Sonia West about the First Amendment and the press.
Welcome back. The First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution prohibits the making of any laws respecting to the establishment of religion, impeding the free exercise of religion, abridging the freedom of speech, infringing the freedom of the press, interfering with the right to peacefully assemble, or prohibiting the petition for a governmental redress of grievances. But my next guest, Sonia West, feels the First Amendment might not be enough to protect a free press. Professor West is a constitutional law professor at the University of Georgia. She, along with Ronnell Anderson Jones, a law professor at the University of Utah, recently penned an op-ed in the New York Times entitled, Don't Expect the First Amendment to Protect the Media. Sonia West, welcome to The Public Morality. Thanks so much for having me. Before we get into uh, the piece that you wrote um, uh, for the New York Times, along with uh, law professor uh, Ron Allen Anderson-Jones of the University of Utah, which was entitled, Don't Expect the First Amendment to Protect the Media, I want to frame this conversation with just a few questions, if I may. Sure. What is uh, the stealth press clause? <laughs> um. So the Stealth Press Clause is what I have called uh, the Supreme Court's rulings that are clearly about the press and clearly aimed at protecting the press, even though they are couched in terms of being sort of general free speech rights or protections that belong to everyone. Uh, The Supreme Court has been reluctant to um, establish sort of a, a unique kind of law, a unique body of law, specifically about the press or about journalists and likes to always say that their um, laws apply or their rulings apply broadly to all speakers. Um, but I've made the argument that if you look, really look at the court's rulings, um, many of them uh, the court is clearly thinking about the press. Many of the cases were brought by the press. Many of them have specific ramifications that are unique to the press. And so even though the court is trying to say it's not passing um, actual press-specific laws, I think when you read through the lines, it, it, it really kind of is. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, also for this conversation, how are you defining the press? What is that? Well, how you define the press is uh, a difficult issue, and it's one of the things that has stopped the court and sometimes stopped legislatures from issuing you know, sort of unique rights and protections uh, for the press. And I think how you define the press can depend in part on what how, what you're talking about. So uh, when you're talking about sort of constitutional rights, I have made the argument that the press should be considered the speakers who are fulfilling what the court has told us repeatedly are sort of the unique core press functions. And these are primarily uh, informing the public about matters of public importance and um, serving as a watchdog of government, a check on government. And if you have speakers who are uh, repeatedly and consistently doing this to an established audience, in my view, they are the press for constitutional uh, purposes. Um, At other times when I have discussions sort of in the New York Times op-ed, I think we're thinking of the press more as the established uh, mainstream traditional press, because that's that's the body. Um, Those are the speakers we're really seeing have this conflict now with with President Trump, and that's in a more, um, you know, colloquial how this affects society term, then we're really focused on on, on that type of established press. And given that uh, definition you just provided, within legally, within the public discourse, that definition has been commingled. So there's some te- is there not some tension there? Or are, we, are we clear about what the press is in the public discourse? 
Oh no, there's lots of there's lots of confusion about what the press is, and and it is causing difficulties for people like me who think that the press fulfills a unique role in our democracy that we should recognize and perhaps issue particular types of of protections that they need in order to do their job that other speakers don't really need, such as access laws or um, reporter shield protections. But no, you're absolutely right. With the um, with the internet, um, we're seeing all sorts of um, entities that are really kind of in between. Um, it's a little confusing. We have everybody from sort of the individual blogger at home who might um, do things that seem very sort of press-like. And then we have entities like Gawker, for example, which does um, some things that seem very much like the traditional press and in other ways really pushes boundaries in a way that we wouldn't see um, you know, the New York Times do and how exactly we're supposed to treat them and where they go. You know, and then we even have comedians. We even have, you know, John Oliver and The Daily Show um, who are clearly informing the public in a lot of ways checking the government but claim they are not the press and claim they are simply a, a humor show. Um, so, no, there's absolutely true that um, it's, it's a very difficult time to sort of nail down specifically who we're talking about and everyone would have differing views. And, and even even with the definition you provided, I mean, we uh, the press is it uh, the press as you define is is very very different stages in terms of uh, financial stability, um, uh, uh, size, strength, reach. I mean, it's, so it's all over the map, uh, even within your definition. Um, absolutely. I mean, uh, again, it depends on what you're talking about. So if, you know, in the in the New York Times op-ed piece. We're focused specifically more, in a lot of ways, on, on newspapers because newspapers are really the more traditional established press that are doing the bulk of the work in terms of news gathering about the government. Um, but uh, even am among that category, we see a wide range of financial stability. We have all sorts of lo local newspapers and even some regional newspapers that are really struggling financially. And then meanwhile, we have the New York Times, which recently has had its, its subscription rates go up. We have the Washington Post hiring a bunch of reporters. So um, there's definitely all sorts of, of um, variations between even that, that one group. Now, specifically about the piece that, um, that you wrote um, with Professor Anderson recently, uh, which, is, which is why we wanted to have you on, mm -hmm. um, you you raise uh, issues that 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 sort of that transcend. I guess you know the, we think of the landmark case, New York Times versus Sullivan, as sort of a the landmark press case. Maybe you don't. I'm I'm, I'm just in the you know. But uh, talk about the genesis and, and the gist of your piece that you wrote. Right. So um, my co-author and I, Professor Anderson Jones, um, part of the reason we wanted to write this case is we both are scholars of media law and constitutional law. And we were finding that a lot of people were sort of coming to us with various things that were going on in the news and sort of saying, but they have a First Amendment right here. You know, the press has a First Amendment right here or they, have a, they can't or the government can't do this because of the First Amendment. You know, isn't that right? And our answer in many of these cases, if not all of them, was no, that we actually do not have recognized First Amendment rights or protections for the press um, that affect these particular situations. And that we, so we wanted to write the piece to sort of explain to people that you really can't sit back and just count on the Constitution and count on the First Amendment 
to protect the press in the situations we are seeing here, particularly in their efforts to cover the executive branch and cover uh, the Trump administration. So you're right, we do have some terrific constitutional law um, cases and precedent that protect the press. You mentioned New York Times versus Sullivan, obviously um, one, of, one of the biggies. Um, but that right gave the press um, a heightened level of protection in defamation cases. Um, so particularly if they're talking about public figures or, or um, you know, powerful private figures. Uh, the, the court said then that you have to prove a really high bar of what we call actual malice that the, that the press you know, really knew or was really reckless um, about what they were publishing might be true or might be false. Um, so that's great. And so, sure, if, if you know, Trump dies, tries as he's threatened, sometimes if he tries to sue the New York Times for defamation, New York Times versus Sullivan would definitely come in and help. But that's just not the scenario we are seeing here. We are seeing scenarios that are much more about access. We are seeing scenarios that are much more about sort of the targeting and hostility against uh, particular reporters because of their coverage, because there's a dislike of their coverage, um, these, these things that really affect basic news gathering um, rather than protect your speech once you have published it. Um, when it comes to the news gathering, the, the First Amendment is very weak and we have very few recognized protections. And rather, um, we have those, those kinds of access rights and other news gathering rights based on the goodwill of legislatures or the government officials themselves or just the public sort of demanding it. I mean, we, we have uh, sort of unprecedented, I, mean, I think, that most people uh, would consider, however you define it, uh, CNN to be part of the press and to have a, uh, at the time he was president-elect, but to have a, a, a commander-in-chief just summarily dismiss them as fake news and move on is really unprecedented. Absolutely. I just think there's no doubt that anybody who follows this that the sort of explicit hostility we are seeing from the president toward the press is just, I mean, even going back to the Nixon administration, and Nixon was no fan of the press, it wasn't quite this explicit, it wasn't quite this openly hostile, this, this sort of clear refusal to uh, take CNN's questions because he was unhappy with uh, um, their coverage, you know, sort of calling you know, uh, you know, the press, you know, the most disgusting human beings and, and um, you know, just repeatedly being so openly hostile. Um, even though the press has had other issues with other administrations, including the Obama administration, um, at least there was sort of a, a, a norm of talking the talk. You know, President Obama would, you know, even though they were having their own conflicts between the press and the administration, um, you know, explicitly acknowledge the important role the press plays, the need to protect the press, why the press is there, um, you know, and that that's just all out the window now. We're just having this very explicit, targeted hostility coming from the White House. Well, I mean, in fairness, I can think of uh, I'm. I'm not familiar with any administration who who just glowingly loved the press. I recall that. Uh, John Kennedy in October of 63 was trying to get David Halmstrand moved out of Vietnam because he didn't like the coverage that was coming back uh, from, from Saigon at the time. Uh, you, you also suggested that whatever protections uh, that the press has enjoyed have been weakened over the years, not just with you know, the Trump administration. So can, can you give us some examples of how, how, the, how some of those things have been weakened over the years? Right. So another thing we really wanted to make clear with our op-ed is that this is 
um, sort of, this isn't the beginning of a process that we might fear will affect the press, but rather what we should all be concerned about is that this could be sort of the last step in a process that has actually been going on for a couple of, of decades now, and that we are really seeing um, the press lose ground on a number of fronts, many of them not legal fronts, uh, that used to give them uh, strength. So some examples we gave uh, included that um, basically financial strength, which you mentioned um, earlier, um, you know, uh, a, a number of decades ago, um, the press had great financial financial strength, and it was able to use that financial strength to be able to protect itself, that um, the, the, the press was, um, um, as a group, you know, known for never settling on a legal case, uh, always taking everything as far to the Supreme Court, fighting hard, um, you know, being able, even local newspapers could hire lawyers to make sure they got access to courtrooms or make sure their lawyers were, or their reporters were protected from having to, re, you know, reveal a confidential source. And, and this strength, um, you know, gave them a, a, a good way to push back um, against uh, uh, the government um, and really win for even the rest of us some very important uh, First Amendment rights and protections that we all owe to the fact that the press was able to fight uh, these 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 cases um, because of their financial strength, and the the media, the news media's financial strength has just been tanking, and uh, they do not have that financial strength anymore. We have had, particularly again, focusing on newspapers, we just have newspapers that are closing foreign bureaus, uh, laying off reporters. Um, you know, except for a couple of recent examples uh, that have seen a bit of an uptick, uh, but uh, but for you know decades now we have just seen the news industry really in this this financial downfall, and uh, and anybody who covers or who who advocates on behalf of the press, uh, which is something I used to do when I was in private practice, and I still am familiar with the people who are doing that, they will all tell you that their clients are no longer um, telling them, you know, let's take this all the way to the Supreme Court, and they are no longer saying, you know, we can we can fight every fight, uh, rather. They have to settle now, and they have to pick and choose which cases they're actually going to to um, fight. And so, without that financial strength, um, that is one example of the ways that the court has been, um, um, or the press has been weakened later. Um, we have a few more I can happily talk about. Go right ahead. Go right ahead. Uh, so uh, another one we mentioned um, was simply the goodwill of the public. Um, back at the time of Watergate, the the public's trust of the news media was at all times high. People saw the press as an important uh, um, pillar in our you know, structure of government and being able to check the government. People wanted to go to journalism school. They said they trusted the press. And that also has been just tanking. And we now have Gallup uh, just recently telling us that uh, the public's um, um, trust in the news media is at its lowest number ever since they started recording it. Uh, we don't have the public who are behind the press. We don't have the public supporting the press. And that translates into the press's power and their ability to sort of go up against the government uh, to be able to say that, you know, they're really representing the people. We don't have as many people coming to the press then, you know, with important information or leads or leaks if they don't trust the press. So that has been hurting uh, the press. Uh, another change that we are seeing is that for a very long time, while the press didn't have legal rights to demand access to the government um, often, uh, particularly to the executive branch, they had just a natural, mutually dependent relationship with the politicians because, yes, they needed the politicians to give them access to the workings of government, but the politicians needed the press 
to be able to get their message out to the public. And so they had to sort of find a way to work together, and, and, and the, the politicians, no matter how mad they got at the press, couldn't completely shut them out entirely. And we're seeing that change as well, too. There's now many, so many different sources of information. Um, everyone gets it from different places that it's hard for sort of, again, the established media to be able to say, we are, we are the way to get your message um, to the public. They can't quite uh, claim that as well. And then, you know, the most obvious one is now we have a president who just bypasses the press altogether and speaks to the public via Twitter um, and doesn't need that intermediary anymore. So that is a way the press has, has um, um, lost some power. Um, another area is in the courts. Back in the 1970s, the courts were very sympathetic, very favorable to the press. When the press went to court, um, they were very likely to win. Uh, and we are seeing a decline there as well. Um, uh, Professor um, Amy Guida at Tulane has done some research showing how it used to be lower courts would defer to the press when they said something was newsworthy, when they said they needed to publish something, and the courts are not doing that as much anymore. They're much more likely to second-guess journalists when it comes to court, uh, comes to um, um, legal issues about the news. The Supreme Court itself has stopped taking press cases. It's, it's rare, it hasn't really taken an important press case in more than a decade. Um, they don't seem interested in it. Uh, several of the justices on their own have given speeches where they talk very negatively of the press. So we're seeing that loss, too. So what we went into saying was the press is losing its financial strength. It's losing the goodwill of the public. It's losing this mutually dependent relationship with politicians that gave it power. It's losing the ability to trust the courts as a way to make sure um, they were protected. And that really leaves us with one final thing, one final um, thing that the press could rely on to get access, and that was simply tradition. It was simply the norms and customs and traditions of how the president has always allowed, you know, the White House press corps, it's always allowed a certain amount of access by the press pool. Um, but those aren't legal protections either. And, and now that seems to be what President Trump is most likely, most wants to go after, is he's, he's just brushing aside all of these customs and traditions about having access from the press. And considering all of the other things that we have seen weaken the power of the press before, this is really concerning to have this final, sort of this final pillar that had been holding up the press of, of, of tradition um, being attacked in the way we were seeing it be attacked by the Trump administration. Um, as you were just giving that answer, I, w I was thinking, is, is part of it also, uh, I guess, the amoral trajectory of the market, meaning what the press used to be, how the 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 current business model, I'm, I'm thinking of print journalism in particular, that business model is, is finding itself not able to really compete in the 21st century. So is that, that part of it? I mean, you, you mentioned the wa uh, Watergate. You couldn't have a Woolwood and Burns unless it was the Wall Street Journal, I mean, uh, the uh, Washington Post or the New York Times now. No, you're absolutely right. So one thing that makes the press unique, um, um, uh, Former Justice Potter Stewart once said that they are the only private business given given explicit constitutional protection, um, you know, which is true and makes it interesting. But the, and doesn't deny that they are indeed a business. Um, so while we think the press fulfills this important structural role in in our republic and how the checks and balances are supposed to work, they still need to make money and they still are a business. And um, and so 
they still have that bottom line. And, and, and what we are seeing is sometimes that bottom line um, can actually make their coverage not very good. Um, you know, more and more now advertisers, um, you know, if they're online, they just want to be on the cases that get lots of clicks. And those might not be, or the stories that get lots of clicks, and those might not be the most important pressing uh, news stories. And, and the business model for newspapers, for example, for years was, you know, you subscribe to the newspaper or you bought a newspaper. Maybe you bought it because you wanted to see the movie times, or maybe you bought it because you wanted to read the sports page, or maybe you bought it to get the coupons. Um, um, but whatever reason you bought it, you would also get the, you know, coverage of city council, and you would also get uh, the coverage of state government, and you would also get the coverage of, you know, the local education system. And so in a lot of ways, uh, the, the readership for one paid for the other. Uh, but now, as I said, we're able to sort of separate all those, and, and particularly online. Um, you know, if, if one story about sports or entertainment gets a lot of hits, that's where the advertisers want to go. Um, and, you know, if you have a story about important national security or, or foreign affairs um, or government policy, um, and it doesn't get enough hits or enough clicks, then we aren't going to have the money there the same way um, um, to support it. So um, they're really struggling that way. And obviously, too, we just have more and more that people just aren't paying for news. They don't pay for content. They expect to get it for free. Um, they used to understand they'd had to subscribe to a newspaper if they wanted to read it. Um, and that's just not what we have anymore. And so we really do see the news industry struggling on how to make this business model work and how to um, pay their reporters and keep their foreign bureaus open um, in a way that makes sense in, in this new environment. Um, I, I Forgive me in advance for digressing, but when you mentioned Justice uh, Potter Stewart, and then I was thinking about your earlier um, uh, definition of the press, I was thinking about another Potter Stewart quote when he says, you know it when you see it, and that's sort of kind of how we've defined the press now, this sort of uh, amorphous thing that we just know it when we see it and we just call it the press, even though you and I might argue that's not quite what it is. Um, right, exactly. <laughs> that, I mean, and, and, you know, and that famous quote there, he's talking about obscenity, but you know, we, I know it when I see it. It's, it's, it, it shows the difficulties at times with judicial definitions of anything when the court is trying to you know, draw a line in the sand between some kinds of speech or another kinds of speech, it can be um, really uh, difficult. Um, the argument I have made in the past, I don't deny the difficulty of defining the press, and it's absolutely true. No, no two people are going to have the same um, um, absolute uh, um, definition. But my concern is that very often we see the court, beca um, because they are concerned with defining who the press is, uh, their answer often is to give rights and protections to no one. Uh, and I think we are actually losing out. I mean, one example I like to give is the court in the 70s decided a couple of cases about um, the press trying to get access to some jails and prisons where they had heard that there were, for example, some possibly cruel um, treatment going on about uh, with uh, prisoners. And, you know, one of the reasons sort of that they went and they wanted to get access to the court and the sheriff, you know, the warden came back and said, well, I just can't have my doors of my prison open to anybody who wants to come look around or anybody who wants to come talk uh, to prisoners, which completely makes, completely makes sense, right? He has, a, he has a prison to run and you can't just have this open door policy to anybody who want, wants to walk in. And, you know, basically we see the court say, well, if we can't just let anybody have access, then we have to let nobody have access. And, and so we have to keep out the, re the press as well. And, and so my thinking is that's a, that's a loss 
for the public in terms of our information flow, and if we could try to find some way to just, you know, to figure out the people who truly are, um, you know, informing the public in a reliable way and let them into the prisons, but not everybody, um, that we are all better off that way. So our, 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 our sphere of trying to define um, the press, I think, is hurting us ultimately in terms of our our information flow, and, and, and ultimately the government does, or the court does have all sorts of ambiguous definitions that have lots of gray areas, and it just deals with it, and it, and it figures it out, and if, if it's in the gray area, it takes a case-by-case -case, um, approach, but it doesn't stop them from trying to define it, but for some reason when it's come to the press, the court just seems to really throw up its hands and conclude this is just not something that we can, that we can figure out. Well, the, the, the real irony is that... Uh Going back to the First Amendment, the, the, the press has had a prominent role in, in, in our American experiment. But we've just seen, you know, recently the Roberts Court uh, giving uh, corporations uh, First Amendment uh, speech rights, at least extending them, I should say. So there's sort of an irony that we don't know what to do with this press that's been with us since our inception. But yet, if you're a corporation, we'll extend, you know, your... Uh, speech rights with um, make them closer on par with an individual. Um, so you're absolutely right, and actually, historians who have looked into the development of our First Amendment rights have found that it seems pretty clear that the framers and the, the framing generation actually valued press freedom over speech freedom. That a lot of you know a lot of the original states in their own constitutions had protection of press freedom, but they only later added in speech freedom that, that you know, the, the founding generation was very concerned about press freedom, and specifically because of this watchdog role that it plays, and they saw how important that was to the structure and survival of our government. So press does have, the press itself has this very strong historical importance, but over the generations, our focus has seemed to switch to speech and individual speech as being the primary uh, right that we want to protect. And, and so we do have the Roberts Court in some ways taking a very broad view of protecting individual uh, uh, speech rights. Um, so as you mentioned in Citizens United, they said corporations have First Amendment speech rights to um, spend money uh, in a political campaign on behalf or against a, um, a, a political um, um, candidate. Uh, they said that's part of the first speech rights. They've had other cases where they came out in favor of speakers when they involved making films that depicted um, animal violence, you know, actual violence to real animals. The, the court um, cited in favor of the speakers there and found there was a speech right. They also uh, found a speech right in a case involving the selling of violent video games uh, to, to minors and to, to children, and the court said you can't regulate that in the way that the state of California in that case had tried. They said the speech interest here um, wins. So in a lot of ways, they have been very pro-speech, but it is in ways that affect different kinds of speakers. They also had another one where they protected a man's right to lie about having won a military medal um, that he didn't win. And the court found you have this First Amendment right, this free speech right to lie, at least in certain situations, as long as you didn't you know, have some sort of material gain. So I, from it. So, so based on the last one, so I can put uh, that I already won the Pulitzer on my CV. That would be okay. I mean, I'm protected by the Supreme Court. Is that <laughs> well, so you can't commit fraud, and you can't, uh, you can't, uh, you know. So, so it'd be difficult. But basically, if you 
Uh, and in this particular case, Congress had passed a particular law, making it a crime to claim to have won a military honor. Uh, and so we basically have a man here who, you know, went to a bar and started bragging to people that he had run, won the Congressional Medal of Honor, uh, and they, he was charged under this law. And they said, no, you know, absent some sign of fraud or absent some sign that you actually engaged in, you got some sort of material or monetary gain from doing it, you have a right to lie. You have a right to, you know, we don't, we don't necessarily um, allow you, the government to criminalize just lying um, in that way. So um, they have been a very pro-speech uh, court in certain ways and in certain categories. Finally, um, uh, given the nature of the piece that you wrote in the New York Times, um, if the First Amendment is not enough to protect uh, the press in its current climate, any thoughts on where we go from here? Um, yeah, so, you know, part of what we're describing, as we said, is, is you know, a process that's taken several decades for the, you know, these various, what we call them pillars, the various pillars that have been supporting the press to kind of weaken over decades. So it's, you know, it's going to be a hard thing to turn around immediately. Um, but there are some things that people can do. Uh, first and foremost, if you can, you should pay for news that you find to be valuable. You should subscribe to newspapers uh, when you can, maybe multiple ones. You should support um, um, news organizations financially um, um, if you find their work to be uh, valuable. Uh, so that's one thing you can do. There are some also in addition in the line of you know, giving money. There's um, some good organizations uh, that really work to help the press. The Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press is one. Um, um, the Committee to Protect journalists is another. Um, so, uh, you know, you can always, always consider them. Um, but you can also, you know, add this to your list of things legislatively that you care about, because a number of these rights and protections we have are, are really at the, the, you know, the, the mercy of legislatures or, um, in some cases, government officials themselves. We might have sort of something written in a handbook um, that we've done in the past, but the government can simply just choose not to follow it if it doesn't want to. So, um, you know, urge your, urge your representatives to um, pass more stronger laws that protect the press, you know, pass a federal shield law, pass, pass more access um, um, legislation that would give uh, the press the rights that uh, it doesn't um, currently have. And, and, and generally just raising awareness about this issue. We've just seen sort of a decline in people's understanding of the important role that the press plays in, in you know, the, the checks and balances of, our, of our, our, our government. I think even supporting just strong journalism and civic education programs in the high school uh, level, uh, there's been studies that have found the difference between whether students are exposed uh, to these concepts in high school has an enormous effect on how they view them later as adults. And, and as we lose these kinds of um, classes in our curriculum, we're seeing a, a populace that doesn't value the role of the press as, as much as prior generations did. Mm. Professor Sonia West, uh, University of Georgia, thank you for being on the Public Morality today. Thank you so much for having me. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which is found on iTunes. The Public Morality is currently in a campaign drive. If you wish to contribute, go to gofundme.com and then search Public Morality. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced at 
WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.